Hello, everybody. This is Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party candidate and the Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on. So I'm, I'm doing this from home today, partly because it got to 11 degrees below and 30 degrees below with the wind chill this morning, and it's still freezing. Uh, partly because my car is in the shop. Uh, I started Tuesday getting the state inspection and then they work on the brakes. Now they got to do the brake lines. And when I was walking back Tuesday to my house, I slipped on some black ice and broke three ribs. So if you hear me grunt in pain, that's what that is. So that's why I'm doing this from home today. Um, but let, let's get started. I, I'll comment on a couple of things and we'll get to your questions and comments. So yesterday, the House passed a quote-unquote horrors of socialism resolution. And this, of course, came from the Republicans, and it condemns all forms of socialism, making no distinction between democratic socialism and authoritarian one-party states that call themselves socialists. Uh, but not surprisingly, you know, all the Republicans voted for it. 109 Democrats also voted for it, voted with the GOP, including of course, the leadership, you know, the uh, Clyburns and Pelosi's and Hakeem Jeffries, uh, but also some progressives like Ro Khanna and Mitzi Kaptur. Only 86 Democrats voted against it. So a 109 to 86 majority in the Democrats voted for the Republican resolution against all forms of socialism. And you know, the, those Democrats, remember, those that voted for this resolution, that the far-right Republicans called the Democrats radical socialists. And, you know, agreeing with the fascists is not how to fight fascism. And trying to plea, appease or placate them is not how you defeat fascists. But that is what a majority of the Democratic House members just did. And they don't know how to fight fascism. You know, like Biden, they want to do you know, bipartisanship with a party that tried to overthrow Biden's election. It's it's crazy. And what are they saying to their own members of their own party, like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who consider themselves socialists? Uh, what they're telling them is to shut up, sit down, and get lost. And that's what the Democratic Party really is. Uh, anybody who thinks it's a vehicle for progressive change or defeating the far right in the U.S. is not paying attention. Um, and then this morning, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, voted uh, to make South Carolina the first primary in 2024, which, of course, favors a centrist Democrat like Joe Biden and disfavors uh, progressive challengers because um, South Carolina is a pretty conservative state. So the new schedule is February 3rd will be South Carolina. Then on February 6th, New Hampshire and Nevada, Georgia, another conservative state on February 13th, and Michigan uh, at the end of the month on the 27th. Uh, that's what the Democrats are saying. And any state that doesn't holds a primary in February, um, that's not one of those states, uh, the, the National Party will not recognize that vote and any candidates that run in it will be sanctioned. So Iowa is screwed. Um, they were the first, they were the, you know, the primary. It's not clear what they're going to do about it. 
And there is a certain rationale to changing the states because Iowa and New Hampshire were two of the most rural and whitest states in the country, really didn't reflect the demographics of the Democratic Party. But this is clearly, uh, they're doing something uh, at Joe Biden's uh, request because uh, he doesn't want to give any potential progressive challenger uh, any chance of, of, of unseating him if, if he runs again. And it looks like he, he will. Uh, he was at that DNC meeting and sounded like he was running. So uh, Democrats are telling you uh, democratic socialism is the same as Stalinism or whatever. And uh, it's not historically true. Uh, it's not even friendly to, uh, you know, other uh, countries where, you know, parties coming out of the social tradition, social democrats in Germany, for example, the Labour Party in Britain, uh, you know, they're, they're voting for a resolution saying uh, those parties lead to horrors. So it just uh, shows how irrational the Congress is. The other thing I want to comment on is uh, they're letting the COVID emergency expire, which is going to have bad consequences. Uh, the administration wants it to be on May 11th. The Republicans have a bill. They probably won't pass the Senate. They'll probably pass the House. It says do it immediately. Just, you know, just stop. Um, and this is, you know, not the time to do it. The World Health Organization still considers COVID-19 to be a public health emergency on a global scale, uh, but not the U.S., where the capitalists running this country want business as usual, no matter how many deaths and disabilities it causes. We've been over or close to 4,000 deaths a week from COVID over the last month. We have 23 million people in this country suffering from long COVID. That's an emergency. Uh, recent studies have suggested that 35 to 45% of the people who get COVID experience symptoms of long COVID to some degree or another. So what this means when the emergency is lifted is that the federal government will stop paying for free vaccines and COVID tests. And we have news that Pfizer, one of the major COVID vaccine manufacturers, uh, will increase it, the price it charges from $19.50, which is what the government got them to agree to under these government contracts where they would provide that the government would pay for our COVID vaccines, they're raising it from $19.50 to $130. And uh, so that's, you know, if you're covered, your insurance company is going to have to pay that. Um, plus, you're going to have to pay some of it with copay, depends on your plan. Uh, and if you're not covered, you're going to have to fork up $130 to get a vaccine, which is not incentivizing people to get vaccines. Um, Pfizer had $100 billion in revenues last year. And 57 of those 100 billion came from the sale of COVID vaccines and some of it from uh, Paxlovid, their antiviral treatment that's used for COVID cases. Um, and that was under the lower price uh, that the government paid for those vaccines. And out of that $100 billion in revenues, uh, the net profits were $31 billion. That's more than the gross domestic product of half the world's nations. Pfizer is a giant. And because they're a giant in an oligopoly with other uh, big drug makers, uh, that's why they can raise that price so much above what it really costs. 
And one thing we were trying to do, and I wrote a press release that the National Party eventually adopted, um, calling for the patents on these vaccines to be lifted um, so that uh, countries, particularly in the global south, could afford to buy and manufacture uh, these vaccines. Um, and, you know, what happened was, you know, Biden paid lip service. Yeah, we should lift the vaccines. But we know from reports that came out of the meetings at the World Trade Organization, where this proposal was put forward by India and South Africa in particular, that the U.S. Uh, joined with the other uh, countries that have big, big pharma uh, companies like the United Kingdom, Germany, and the Netherlands to block the lifting of those vaccine patents. Um, and so it didn't pass in the World Trade Organization. Um, so what's going to happen is when this emergency is lifted, uh, millions of people are going to be removed from the Medicaid that expanded during the emergency because one of the points of the emergency was you couldn't knock people off Medicaid during the emergency. So they estimate that 6.7 million children are going to lose their coverage. And that's out of 400 million children covered by Medicaid or CHIP, the uh, Ch Children's Health Insurance Program. Um, so there's a very negative immediate impact. Now, the People's CDC, which I've talked about before on this podcast, um, they are demanding that the government maintain the state of emergency, uh, renew the congressional funding for the pandemic response, which Congress failed to uh, renew the funding in the fall, uh, and to make public health policies, including masking based on the uh, community, uh, on the CDC's community transmission map, and retire the misleading community levels map. Um, so that's just the, the community transmission map is a better measure of what's going on and more responsive uh, to when uh, public health measures need to be introduced to deal with COVID spreading. Um, and so the People's CDC also calls for a bunch of other uh, policies, including fast accessible PCR testing for everyone, free access to N95 grade masks for everyone, uh, free access to updated treatments, uh, and that might include the antivirals that are still being developed as well as those that exist, uh, booster access for all, in other words, uh, boosting your vaccine, uh, funding for accelerated next generation and nasal vaccines, paid sick leave, clear and science-based quarantine and isolation policies in contrast to the politically motivated policies we've had, where I've talked about this before. You know, the Republicans just pushed to lift all these things, and the Democrats uh, followed them. Um, more funding for air ventilation and filtration upgrades in public buildings, and then uh, funding long COVID treatments and research uh, with the participation of long COVID patients. So basically, what they're advocating is that the government uh, have public health policies, and also fund uh, what people need to deal with uh, COVID, which is uh, really what we talked about when we talk about Medicare for All as a community-controlled national health service, except it wouldn't just be for COVID 
it would be for all medically necessary services. And let's put in the chat the uh, link to the People CDC and the position paper we did on uh, uh, Medicare for All as a community-controlled national health service. Um, and that lays out, you know, how we can cover everybody and, and bring the whole system under democratic community control. Um, and the people CDC, I urge you to look at that. Uh, they have a weekly, they call it a weather report, tells you where COVID is at um, and what's going on in terms of public policy. It's a good way to stay up on what's going on, certainly better than the uh, politically compromised uh, recommendations we're getting from the Biden administration and his appointees at the CDC. So COVID's not over. I don't care what they say. And, uh, you know, nearly 4,000 people a week dying is an emergency. And it's not time to call off the emergency and the public health measures. And uh, subsidies, you know, uh, government providing access to what's needed to deal with COVID. So um, I hope people keep that in mind. So I look forward to your questions and comments. <clears throat> Stupid vegan world. Will this impact protection against hidden fees? Is that still in effect? Um, the hidden fees, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how the uh, COVID emergency protected against hidden fees because the services covered were supposed to be covered by the government. So if, if insurance or providers were, you know, adding fees to what was already paid for, um, you know, that was a problem. I, I'm, I'm just not aware of that happening. Um, and certainly if they lift the emergency, if there was protection against hidden fees in the emergency, that's going to be lifted. Um, yeah, there's a big problem with hidden fees in healthcare. And, uh, a lot of times they want to give you the treatment or the service and then tell you what it costs, even though you can't afford it. And then you're stuck with medical debt, which so many people are. Priscilla Ann, what can I do? I will be training to become a voter registration deputy to urge the younger generation here to vote. Well, I think, you know, that's a good thing to do. Um, so I'm not sure what, what you're asking, because it sounds like you already know what you're going to do. Um, if you're looking for other things to do, is that the question? Um, well, I think, you know, voter registration is something that goes on year round. And, uh, you know, the, the bigger question is, how do we get more people to vote? And, uh, I think there, you know, we need to have candidates that, that uh, speak to the people's needs that people get enthusiastic about. And then uh, we need competitive elections, which we don't have under our single member district winner take all system. I've said this many times, 95% <clears throat> of the state legislative districts and over 90% of the house districts are non-competitive. Uh, we know who's going to win before the election even happens. Uh, because, you know, they're overwhelming majority Democrat or Republican. So, you know, what's the point of voting when you know who's going to win? It makes the election kind of farcical. That's why we need ranked choice voting 
and particularly for legislative bodies, proportional ranked choice voting. So we get proportional representation. And then every vote for you candidate helps your party get uh, your fair and proportional share of representation in legislatures, the House, state legislatures, city councils, and so forth. Andrew Keith, any advice to anybody considering registering as a Green? Well, I urge you to do it, but more than just registering, because all that does is tell the state uh, what primary you can participate in. And in a lot of states, the Greens don't have state-organized primaries anyway. Um, it's really just an affirmation of support. The, the more important thing is to get involved in a local Green group. And, uh, you know, that's that's where, you know, working together, uh, figuring out what our positions are in, in the local case, our local issues, uh, and being active around them, both in street politics between elections and during elections, um, that's the important thing. One active green is worth thousands of registered greens if all they do is, um, you know, show up to vote at a primary. You know, this should be a year-round thing, not a full-time thing, but it's something you work into your uh, regular uh, round of activities. And that's what makes the big difference. So my advice to anybody considering registering green is to do it and then get active in a, a local green organization. Priscilla Ann, do you have any resources to collectivize for Green Party? Um, well, we're, I, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is to um, speak about collectivization of the economy or socialization of the economy. And the other is just a, a place where those resources are available. One thing we're trying to do with the Green Socialist Organizing Project is uh, provide the best resources, both in terms of organizing and in terms of policy and in terms of social theory. Um, you know, what is the system we're up against? How does it work? How do we change it? Um, that kind of theory. And let's put the Green Socialist Organizing Project uh, website up. Uh, there are a number of resources there. One of them that just went up is that uh, piece of paper or that policy paper about the Medicare for All as a community-controlled national health service. Um, so that's one thing we're trying to do. Um, and then in terms of resources to collectivize for Green Party, if, if we're talking about uh, collectivizing or socializing the economy, um, there's some position papers of the Green Socialist Organizing Project. I talked a lot about, a lot about it on my presidential campaign and you can go through that website. That's howiehawkins.us. Um, and so that that those papers talk about particularly certain industries. We got the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal, uh, which we have a new plank in the national platform of the Green Party, which kind of outlines uh, how and why we need to take that approach to dealing with the, the climate crisis. And the basic argument there is that, you know, what we're getting to the extent they're doing anything from the federal government and the uh, progressive Democrats who've been pushing uh, climate action and even a Green New Deal, if it's 
you know, say AOC or Bernie Sanders, is most of it is instead of doing it through the public sector, where we have democratic control and accountability, uh, they're mainly, you know, providing contracts for the private sector or tax incentives or tax breaks um, or subsidies. And the problem with that is uh, it's not a plan to get, you know, with objectives to get something done. It's just incentives to go in a certain direction. And you're not sure you're going to get there. Um, what we can do through public ownership and planning is really have a plan to get where to where we need to be in the timeline we need to do it. So um, those are resources you can look at for uh, collectivizing or socializing the economy. Um, so I hope I answered your question. I sort of took it in two ways. Our education working groups 2023 focus is putting together local organizing resources. So we'll have more resources available at greensocialist.net as the year continues. So right, the education working group of the Green Socialist Organizing Project is pulling together local resources. And some of them, I believe, are still already up on that website. Um, but that's one thing that uh, the Green Socialist Organizing Project, uh, which this podcast is part of, is uh, trying to do. Here we go. Lucy, this is interesting. Are there or aren't there active chapters of the Green Party who are organizing toward platform goals, local issues, and specific legislation with recruitment strategies? There are and there should be more local, active locals. Um, right now, the National Party is a federation of state Green Parties, and it's very uneven in their development state by state. Some state parties are frankly just a little clique of folks that got the franchise and they're not doing anything. They don't have active locals. And then there are other states that do. So, you know, to find out if they're locals in your area, you should go to your state party and you can find your state party at the national party website. Um, and if you don't get a response there, don't uh, be discouraged. You know, try to get together with, uh, you know, like-minded people in your locality and organize a local and then figure out how to affiliate that to the state party. Um, I believe we should have a membership party where people agree to the principles and pay dues. So we have the resources uh, in a national party that can then provide real assistance to organizing these state parties and local chapters. And uh, you know that should be the top priority because if we're gonna become a mass party with that can, contest for power and make change, it's got to be built at the local level, locality by locality. And uh, we've been weak at that. Uh, as I said, some states are doing better than others, but it should be a priority for all of us in the Green Party uh, to build those chapters. And, you know, you named what they should be doing, you know, organizing toward platform goals, local issues, and specific legislation, and recruitment. I mean, that's another thing. Uh, we tend to, you know, where we do have activities, you know, put a Facebook event up or something and it, you just get the usual suspects showing up. And, you know, it's good that we keep meeting, but how do you reach out? And I think you got to do that by, you know, talking to people uh, independent of these calls for action. You got to knock on their doors and talk to people. I've talked about this, you know, 
uh, deep canvassing. And you're not going there to tell people we have all the answers and join us, but to listen to what their concerns are and what they think and develop relationships with people. And just the fact that you show up and listen uh, begins to develop a relationship because the other parties aren't doing that. And then when people see us active in the community on issues that concern them, uh, and when we, you know, keep talking to them, you don't just knock on the door once, um, you keep going back uh, periodically. I mean, you don't want to hector people, but, you know, you want to see what's going on, what they think uh, since the last time you knocked on the door. And, uh, and then you'll find people that want to get involved and not just appreciate what we're doing. Um, and I think that's the, the strongest recruitment strategy. Of course, you can table in busy areas, farmers markets, you know, uh, where you can do it, you know, corners downtown. Um, and you can talk to people randomly that way. Um, and that should be done as well. But uh, I think we should be canvassing our communities, you know, in a systematic way and finding out who out there supports us, uh, who shares our concerns about issues, even if they aren't ready to support us now. Um, and who are the people against us? You know, you don't want to waste your time on them too many times because uh, some people are pretty uh, stuck in their ways. Um, but that's the kind of, you know, grassroots organizing we should be doing. And, uh, you know, I found here, you know, just my own case in Syracuse, when we first started the Green Party here in the early 1990s, we ran candidates in 1993. Uh, I ran for counselor at large and another guy ran for school board and we got 3% of the vote. And over the nineties, we couldn't get the newspapers to pay any attention. Our votes started gradually going up. Um, but then in early two thousands, um, I ran a race for Congress, got into a debate with the member of Congress, got on the editorial board meetings. And suddenly people said, Hey, the greens are serious. They got, real policy proposals, they know what they're talking about, and they've been around for a decade. So it's not like they're one-shot thing. It took a while to get that kind of respect. And we built from there. So, um, you know, by 2015, we ran, you know, candidates statewide and for some of the districts, and all of us got over 30%, um, including citywide as well as district races. Uh, usually, in fact, that year, every case, coming ahead of the Republicans. We had become the second party in the city. Um, and I got from 3% as close as 48% in a two-way race for a city council seat. Um, so, you know, it, it may take a while to build that base, but um, that kind of base built at the local level is going to be a lot more stable than the kind of support that comes and goes with the high-profile races like the presidential race. You know, some years are good for us. Ralph Nader ran for an open seat. Uh, Jill Stein in 2016 ran for an open seat against the two most unpopular presidential candidates by the polling in history. Uh, those were good years for us. You know, when uh, we ran in 2004, you know, anybody but Bush or 2020, anybody but Trump, it was harder. Um, so, you know, people came to us in 2000 and 2016 and then moved away uh, the next cycle. Uh, but not so much in the places where we had strong bases that were built by organizing. Because those people understood, you know, what the Green Party was about and why it's important. So 
uh, I think, you know, the what you raised here is really, I think, the top priority to, to build an alternative in this country. You got to build local organizations that are engaged in their communities consistently. Stupid Vegan World asks, is there any collaboration with libertarians in terms of rank choice? Uh, I think you mean proportional representation, getting on ballots, access to presidential debates, etc. Stuff on leveling the playing field. Yes, I think that's where we and the libertarians collaborate most. I mean, here in New York, we're in a lawsuit jointly with the libertarians around ballot access. Um, and we're trying to get legislation before the state legislature for ranked choice voting, including proportional ranked choice voting for the legislature. Um, and the debates, you know, we, uh, we both complained jointly in 2018 when uh, Cuomo uh, didn't let me in the debate after I'd been in the last two rounds, last two cycles I've been in the debate with him. Uh, and the Libertarian uh, wanted in. He deserved to be in. He was on the ballot. And he did that year for the first time for them, get enough votes to get a ballot line. And then Cuomo turned around and changed ballot access in this state and knocked both the Greens and the Libertarians off the ballot. So yes, this is one thing where Greens and Libertarians uh, have the same concerns and is a good area where we can work together. Uh, you know, of course we disagree on a lot of other issues, but uh, you know, let, let us, let us into the elections, and then we can debate those issues there. Eric Gray, Governor Ron DeSantis is at it again with his clown show, so teachers are in fear of facing felony charges here in Florida, as well as his clear racism toward African-Americans. How can we put a stop to this? Um, well, DeSantis is going to become a national issue because uh, this thing about, uh, you know, preventing the teaching of black history um, has become a national issue now, uh, particularly since apparently the uh, standardized test people have uh, capitulated to some of his uh, point of view. Um, so, you know, all of us should now be speaking out against this and, uh, you know, exposing DeSantis for the hypocritical clown that he is. And uh, so I think, you know, education, advocacy, op-eds, letters to the editor, uh, you know, I guess when he starts making the rounds, if he runs for president, you know, counter demonstrations against his uh, racism and other craziness. So I think that's how we begin to put a stop to it. But uh, people got to speak up and not just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, he's a, you know, crazy right winger. What can you do? Uh, you can make, you know, you can show that you disapprove and that what he's talking about doesn't have the kind of approval that uh, silence would uh, make it seem he did. Scout Trooper 164, Howie, what do you think of DeSantis preparing for a 2024 presidential range, right, run? Also, you froze so much, you went back to your library. Um, that was part of it. Uh, part of it is I got 
my car is still in the shop. So I didn't want to, you know, freeze the, my butt off, you know, walking over to the Green Party storefront where I usually do these from. Um, and like I said, it, it got below, uh, it was 11 degrees this morning, 11 degrees below zero this morning and uh, 30 mile an hour per winds, which made the wind chill below 30 degrees below zero. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. I'm not freezing, but uh, it's still taking a while for the place to warm up. I think the last time I looked, it was about 12 degrees. So it's going to warm up overnight and into tomorrow. So uh, just got to be a little bit patient and uh, I won't be freezing. Scout Trooper 164, any comments on the so-called Chinese balloon spying? Um, I assume it's a, you know, it's a spy balloon. Chinese at first said it was a weather balloon, but they don't seem to be maintaining that from what I can tell. Um, and that's what, you know, we do it to the Chinese. They do it to us. Uh, I don't think it's that big a deal. Um, it's, it makes you wonder why they would, though, they would put a balloon that was obviously going to be spotted uh, over the United States at this time. You know, was that a provo provocation? Are they trying to send a message? You know, diplomats Matt's are going to talk about that. Blinken is not going on a scheduled trip to China this weekend because of it. And what I was hearing just before I came on is that it looks like, uh, the military is getting ready to shoot that balloon down so they can look at, you know, what what the equipment was they had uh, when it goes out over the Atlantic, which is happening right about now. So um, I think it's, you know, a, a good way to get people to watch cable news. I don't think it's earth shaking news, though, uh, because it's the kind of thing uh, we do and they do from their satellites all the time. And uh, it just, you know, I do have questions about why they would put a balloon that was obviously going to be spotted over the U.S. at this time. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess the diplomats will be telling us what they think about that over the next few days. Oh, they did shoot it down right as we came online. OK, so I guess they're going to cover whatever uh, equipment. The balloon was carrying, and they'll say what it was. Scout Trooper 164. A U.S. general said war between U.S. and China is inevitable by 2025. Any thoughts? I think it's just fear-mongering. Yeah, I think this general's a hawk. He's trying to get more funding for the military, um, and it's in their interest to be alarmist. Um, I don't think it's inevitable. Um, I think it's something we got to avoid. I mean, we really should be talking to the Chinese uh, rather than, you know, sending diplomatic messages, uh, you know, with uh, threats and, uh, you know, positioning military assets uh, as a way to say, you know, supposedly as a deterrent to China, uh, you know, their response is to arm even more. We got to get out of that dynamic and got to go the other way. We should be talking with the Chinese about climate issues and about the new nuclear arms race in particular. Um, 
and COVID too. I mean, it's not clear how forthcoming China has been about their COVID situation from the very beginning of this pandemic. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Now, I'm I'm for criticizing China's human rights abuses, but not saying, uh, not making talking to them conditional on China changing its behavior because they won't just because of that. Um, but world public opinion does affect even dictatorships. So uh, it's important to speak out on that, but uh, not to let that get in the way of talking about the things we need to talk about. And, uh, you know, climate is one, you know, and it's, it's true in the uh, United Nations uh, framework convention on climate change, which sets up these cop, you know, council of parties, uh, conference of parties, uh, climate summits every year, that the U.S. and China have stood together against mandatory uh, emissions uh, limits, um, against uh, loss and damage payments to the global south. Now, I know at the last uh, COP, you know, in Egypt, they agreed in principle to that, but they didn't put any money behind it. That was kicked down the road. And the U.S. and China work together on that. And then uh, they both promote basically privatizing the atmosphere uh, with carbon offsets and carbon markets. So um, they need to talk, but they both need to get, you know, with the program of climate action. And that's where we come in. We got to pressure our side to do that. Um, and the same thing goes with uh, nuclear arms. I mean, the U.S. has a lot of leeway to take unilateral initiatives to stimulate uh, real negotiations on nuclear disarmament. We could pledge no first use. China has that policy. Uh, we could, you know, unilaterally uh, diminish our nuclear forces and still have a credible deterrent. Uh, for example, and, and Daniel Ellsberg talks about this, we should just get rid of our intercontinental ballistic missiles, which, by the way, are in Montana and that Chinese balloon was right above them. Um, the problem with them is um, because they're not like, say, a submarine, um, they can be taken out. And because they can be taken out in a first strike, uh, the inclination is uh, to be ready. And they're on um, hair trigger alert all the time. The inclination is to fire them first before they get fired on in a crisis or because of misreading uh, signals about, you know, what the radar is showing. I mean, we've had bird migrations trigger nuclear alarms um, or, you know, misunderstanding what another country's doing. There was in the 80s a time when we were doing war games uh, in Europe uh, that looked to the Soviets like preparation for a first strike. And they were thinking about striking us first before their nukes were wiped out in our first strike. And it came very close. So that's the world we live in and we got to get out of it. So um, I don't think war is inevitable with China. I think uh, we could be do a lot better with our diplomacy with China. Uh, we've had, you know, Trump uh, scapegoating China for all kinds of things. Uh, and then uh, and, and imposing uh, trade barriers, which Biden has doubled down on. And, uh, you know, the whole U.S. policy is to treat 
China as a rising competitor that we don't want to rise, uh, which is not the way to live in peace in the world. If China rises economically, brings uh, the standard of living up for their people, that's good. And uh, we, we should not see them as, uh, and we shouldn't want to be the you know unipolar world police uh, and, and dominant power. Uh, we want to live in a world like the United Nations Charter provided for, you know, equality and cooperation among nations, um, rather than saying the U.S. has got to be the top dog. So um, we need negotiation with China, but we also need to change the position the U.S. takes in those negotiations, whether it's arms control or uh, climate action um, and uh, COVID. You know, we uh, I mentioned the COVID vaccine patents. Um, you know, and in China wouldn't use our vaccines, although apparently they're were much more effective than the ones they developed. I mean, that's an area where if we had better relations, you know, then China might not take it as a an assault or insult to their pride if they were using American-made vaccines simply because they work better. Um, so there's a lot of room for improvement there. And uh, this general, you know, he got a lot of attention for his, you know, alarmist remarks, but I think you're right. It, it was it was more fear mongering uh, than a, a objective, uh, you know, cool and calculated analysis. <clears throat> At war with dust, does the Green Party take an official an official position on legalizing gambling and casinos? Um, I don't know if the National Green Party does. There may be planks in there that I'm not familiar with. Um, and knowing here in New York, it's been an issue and we haven't been too involved um, except as a candidate, I have commented on the fact that uh, as an economic development policy, Cuomo went in for that big. He went in big for casinos. And I said, you know, that's not gonna develop the economy. That's just gonna rearrange who has what money because the house always wins. So the people go in there uh, for the gambling, uh, on average, they're gonna come out with less money and the, the casino owners are gonna have more. That's not economic development. That's just rearranging who's got the money that we have in New York. Uh, you know, Economic development money and policy should be focused on uh, building up real production. Uh, particularly now with the climate action, we've got to rebuild our whole uh, energy and manufacturing infrastructure for uh, clean, renewable energy. And that's plenty of economic development. You know, the next decade is the time in which we advocated be done. That's massive investments. I mean, getting sidetracked on uh, gambling is, is a uh, waste of time. Um, as far as uh, legalizing gambling, uh, in New York, it's the uh, Indian nations that have the right to do it without special permission from the state because of federal law. And, you know, for in their case, rearranging some of the money so they have more money on the reservations is, you know, probably on balance a progressive thing. Although a lot of people, you know, get in trouble with gambling. And so then you got the people who become addicted and they lose their money and, you know, they're in trouble because of the, the gambling. So, it's, it's just not something to encourage. On the other hand, you don't want it to go underground because then you've got an underground economy with 
uh, violent enforcers. And uh, that's that's probably worse. So the, you know, the uh, least harm position is to legalize gambling, but regulate it and limit it. And in, you know, in New York City, they want to bring a casino down there, uh, which is, is at least going to hurt the uh, casinos the Indian nations hold. And uh, under Cuomo, we build a bunch of more casinos, and they're not doing that well. Um, so in this case, it wouldn't even expand the gaming industry. It would just uh, have people living in New York City doing it in town instead of getting on the bus and going over to New Jersey or upstate. Andrew Keith, how can a new party member vote in the presidential primary? Well, it depends on your state. Um, California will have a presidential primary. Uh, new York state will not because we lost our ballot status. Uh, it goes state by state. In most states, you won't have a primary. I'm trying to remember the primaries I ran in. It was California. It was the District of Columbia. Uh, it was Texas, I think. No, that was an internal. Well, okay, so then there's state-run primaries in those two states, and, and probably a couple others had primaries. And then uh, green parties will run their own primaries, you know, within the party uh, when the election comes. And um, so you, you got to know what's happening in your own state. Um, but there will be an opportunity uh, to vote in the green presidential primaries. Uh, or conventions, in some cases, states just have a convention, um, and you need to uh, be a member to, or elected as a delegate from your local uh, to vote there. Um, but the delegates should be instructed by their local, so you can vote for your local for how you want your delegates to vote. So there's a way to participate. You just got to find out what's happening in your state. And uh, don't get frustrated. The 2020 primary season a lot of states didn't figure out how they were going to do this till, you know, late in the spring. Uh, so I guess just pay attention and, and figure out how to do it in your state. Scout Trooper 164, George Santos had something that the U.S. media chose not to cover. What is that? Um, you know who else didn't cover it? It was his... Republican primary opponents and his Democratic opponent. They didn't do their opposition research. And uh, the media, yeah, they focus on the, uh, certainly the, you know, like he's on Long Island. So the New York City media focused on the governor's race and uh, trying to think what other races they really focused on down there. There was no local election in New York. So you know, some of the competitive congressional races. Santos was out on Long Island, and I don't know how competitive that race. I, I didn't really follow it myself. But um, so the major media, you know, they didn't prioritize that congressional district. I think, you know, the real reason why, you know, he wasn't exposed is that his Republican opponents in the primaries and then his Democratic opponent in the general didn't do, you know, what any decent candidate would do. And that is, you know, do the research on who you're running against. And this guy's stories were, uh, you know, easily, uh, you know, discovered. His lives easily discovered once people looked. So uh, 
U.S. media has some uh, responsibility, but I blame his opponents uh, as the first cause of that problem. Priscilla Ann, what do you think of the National Justice Party? I've been voting green since Nader. I listened to one of their speeches regarding protecting American rights, law-abiding citizens. Thank you. I'm not familiar with, well, okay, there was a Justice Party uh, in 2016 that was trying to get organized. Uh, and this guy who was a former mayor of uh, Salt Lake City, Anderson, forgetting his first name, uh, was kind of the leading figure behind it. I haven't heard much about them since. If that's the same party, you know, a lot of their positions were very similar to the Green Party. And like a Rocky Anderson, thank you. That's that was the guy. And um, you know, I, I they like a lot of people. You know, the Greens. Um, we've been around thirty-five years. We survived when a lot of other third parties have come and gone. Uh, I think that's because we're the major party on the progressive side of things. Uh, it's not a Democrat or Republican. So people get frustrated with the Democrats that come to the Green Party. You know, and, and my question always for the Justice Party people is, well, why don't you come into the Green Party and make it better rather than trying to start from scratch, uh, which didn't work for them, as far as I know. I, I don't know if they still exist. Um, maybe you're referring to another party. If it's there's a new party called National Justice, I'm not familiar with it. Lucy, at the beginning of the slide, it sounded like there was a new new legislation about socialism being made illegal. Have you said everything you wanted to say about that? Was there other news to get to? It wasn't to make socialism illegal. It was a resolution condemning socialism. It was entitled Horrors of Socialism. And it, it, it's a resolution of the sense of the Congress. And the House, uh, the resolution says... Uh, the last concluding clause says, you know, uh, we oppose socialism in any form because it leads to totalitarianism, something like that. Uh, so it wasn't making socialism illegal. It was just saying we oppose it. Um, so it's passed the House. It's a performative bill. It's posturing by the Republicans. Uh, they wanted to put the Democrats on the spot, and they failed the test because the majority of them also voted for it, as I pointed out. Um, it'll now go to the Senate. Um, it'll be interesting. It, you know, it may pass there. They only need a few Democrats to cross over. It, they don't need two-thirds. Maybe they do. No, they need two-thirds to bring it to the floor. Um, so the Democrats could use the filibuster. I don't, it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Um, but in any case, it's not about making socialism illegal. It's saying it's a resolution saying we oppose. One of the things it says we oppose socialist policies, which means what? Medicare, Social Security, progressive taxation. For a lot of these Republicans, yeah, that's what they mean. Um, so that's about all I can say about it. It's uh, you know the, the the Congress is the House is not going to get much done, so they're 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 passing you know symbolic stuff like this.
Scout Trooper 164, the car market is imploding. Any knowledge about this? Um, no, I, I didn't realize it was. I haven't followed it. Uh, maybe that uh, COVID money that people got, um, they've spent a lot of it. Um, maybe they hear the recession is coming and they're saving their money. Um, but I'm not familiar with where the car market is at. I do remember hearing during uh, this inflation period that uh, used cars, the cost of used cars went way up. Um, which, you know, so I guess when you say imploding, you mean sales are down. Um, but I, I'm not familiar, you know, with what's going on in, with the car market. Strong flower. Hi, Howie. To follow up on the last discussion, correct me if I'm wrong, you take the position that Green Party will have enough resourceful funding, despite the fact that Biden is investing in Ukraine. I think you're asking not whether the Green Party has the money, but whether the United States has enough money to provide for the people's needs and also provide aid to Ukraine. And I say, yes, you know, we have the largest economy in the world um, and we have plenty of money if we tax the rich and cut back on military spending to provide housing, education, healthcare to all Americans and provide military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Um, what we need to stop spending it on is things like uh, forward deployment in over 800 military bases around the world of our military. Uh, we provided a lot more aid to Saudi Arabia and the uh, United Emirate, Arab Emirates for their war in Yemen. I'm trying to remember the numbers. I looked this up recently. It was like 56 billion since 2015 in arms aid to those two countries while this war, terrible war in Yemen is going on. And there's $127 billion in arms sales to the Saudis in the pipeline from the United States. Okay, so right there, that that's money we should not be spending. Uh, we should be cutting that off uh, because, you know, that war in Yemen is, uh, you know, a terrible war. That problem in Yemen needs to be resolved uh, at the negotiating table and the Saudis should not be in there backing one faction. Uh, and it's, you know, led to one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the, in the world right now. Um, that's an example of where we're not spending uh, our money in the right place. So yeah, I, the U.S. has plenty of resources. It's just got its priorities wrong. And what we're giving to Ukraine uh, is a tiny fraction of the total military spending. So yeah, we can afford it. Rents and housing keep going up. Your thoughts, asked Vicki Corden. Well, uh, we I would say federal rent control like we did during World War II. Uh, it's really a problem now with inflation and coming out of the COVID crisis when a lot of people couldn't pay their rent. So that's leading to more homelessness. Um, and then we don't have enough affordable housing in, in our you know, market. And what the U.S. has been doing since Johnson and increasingly more and more so, Nixon upped it a lot. And, you know, since Nixon, we haven't built any public housing. And under Clinton, we got an amendment passed to Faircloth Amendment that said uh, 
The number of units of public housing in the country cannot be increased. Uh, and this is all to steer affordable housing money to private developers who, first of all, they got to want to, you know, take the subsidies offered to build affordable housing, which most of them are, are not eager to do because they can make more money building for upscale markets. And uh, those that do it, it costs more per unit to build those subsidized private to privately developed units than it does to build it through the public sector, through public housing authorities. So rent control, and then we need to radically increase the public housing in this country and do it in a better way. We're not talking about the kind of segregated, uh, concentrated housing in high poverty areas, which we've been doing since the 50s. Uh, we did really after World War II, um, and any developments built since they kind of put a cap on total uh, public housing. Uh, it, it should be mixed income. So you're not segregating poor people from the rest of society. Um, and it should be scattered, you know, not just in, you know, high poverty urban areas, but uh, throughout metropolitan areas and all communities. That's the way they do it in Europe. Uh, well, less than 1% of our Total housing stock is public in this country. In Europe, it's often, you know, 20% or more. In the city of Vienna, it's 60%. And what that means is the private market has to compete with the public rents, which are, uh, the rents are uh, set at what covers the costs of maintaining the housing. It doesn't add in profit. And when you have a tight housing market, landlords and developers will will gouge and squeeze more profit because they can. They've got the bargaining power. So that's why we should build public housing. Uh, for the housing it builds, it should be high quality. It should be green. It should be mixed income, desegregated. And uh, you build enough of that, and then the private market has to compete with it. So those rents will come down. So that's where we ought to be heading. And right now, we don't have a policy from the federal government, anything like that. We're just kind of maintaining these half-assed, you know, subsidies for public housing. Um, I'm not sorry, for privately developed affordable housing. And, you know, states are doing some of that. Um, meanwhile, some of our public housing authorities are privatizing the units they have. New York City's doing that. They're doing it here in Syracuse. Um, so we're going in the wrong direction. And uh, so we got to get back. And, and one thing we can do because the federal government uh, given the role the Republican Party is not likely to go on a public housing binge, we got to get social housing programs passed in our states and cities. States have the most fiscal capacity to fund that, but some of the cities could do it as well uh, through uh, their existing public housing authorities or set up a new social housing authority to deal with housing that the public authority can't deal with because they're already at capacity with the units they have. Um, so those are the two things, rent control and build public housing. Howie, will any Black Greens be on the show since this is Black History Month? Thanks. Uh, that's a good idea. And uh, nobody's scheduled yet, but uh, I will follow up on that. And I'm sure we'll uh, get somebody to talk about uh, issues of concern to African-Americans 
in Black History Month. Okay, well, that, that's four o'clock, so Eastern time. And that's a good question uh, or comment to end it on. Uh, gives me something to focus on, even though I'm moving a little slowly with these broken ribs. Um, so I'll just leave you with uh, two uh, recommendations. One is uh, the Ukraine Solidarity Network statement is out. You can sign it. Um, we'd like you to join us in, um, you know, help build solidarity for the people of Ukraine struggling under this invasion. And uh, there it is. So, you know, take a look at our statement and you can sign it and get involved in the network. And then the Green Socialist Organizing Project. We now got our legal ducks in a row. We have a bank account and we're accepting membership and uh, we have monthly meetings where we uh, talk about the issues and focus on the activities we're going to do. And there's the uh, link right there on the screen, greensocialist.net. So I hope you uh, get involved in those two efforts, as well as, you know, what I've been emphasizing and we talked about again today is build the green locals, build a local organization. When we work together, we all get smarter. We learn more. It's more fun. Uh, it keeps your spirits up when things don't look good. So, uh, you know, happy organizing and have a good week. I hope yours is better than mine was this week. Those broken ribs, man. I, I just, when I just did that little laugh, it hurt. It's hard to sleep. It's hard to breathe, but uh, they'll get better. You just got to be patient sometimes. So everybody have a good week and I intend to have a better week than I had last week. Take care. Yeah.